is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Governor Josh Green is attending the Western Governors Association's annual meeting today, but before he left on Friday, he sent out a list of bills that he plans to veto. HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden joins us to tell us more. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So this week, the House and Senate will caucus to discuss to discuss Governor Josh Green's intent to veto list as well as line item vetoes. So Green has identified 11 bills he intends to veto in addition to 22 line item vetoes from the state budget. He sent out the list Friday a little bit ahead of schedule. Today's the actual deadline, but it was because he was traveling this weekend. I spoke with House Speaker Scott Psyche when the list came down last week. He said that compared to Governor David Ige, Green's list of bills is much smaller. Uh, Psyche said that he attributes that to Green trying to have more of an open dialogue with state lawmakers. I did notice um, that, that Governor Green did go out of his way to reach out to the legislature to learn more about these bills. You know, if he had questions about them, he'd reach out to us to learn what our intent was, what the purpose of the bill was. I think he really did make an effort um, to understand why the legislature passed these bills. And, you know, so the, the fact that you only have 10, you see only 10 bills on this list um, shows that he really, he really made an attempt to give some deference to the legislature um, in reviewing the bills that we had approved. So there were a few bills of interest. There is one, Senate Bill 1518, which would exempt the Department of Education from the procurement process for educational materials. Green said the current process is uniform and should remain the same for state government entities. He said if enacted, this may open unfair advantages to certain vendors. There was another bill that would expunge underage DUIs and some property crime records for uh, laws Back before 1998, uh, the attorney general said the bill, as it's written, would not be effective since the laws referencing those crimes were enacted after 1998. There is another bill that would have raised the apostle certification price from $1 to 10 and creates a special fund for the money. Uh, Apostles are currently issued through the office of the lieutenant governor, and they're used to certify international documents like for adoption, marriage, or for wills. It was a measure introduced by Representative Kyle Yamashita for the current lieutenant governor, Sylvia Luke. She wanted the bill to help modernize the process and bring it online. Currently, apostles are only done through mail, so people have to use money orders or send money through the mail to the office, which is kind of antiquated. And Governor Green said the increase would be disproportionately affecting educational and community groups, and he felt that it was too large of an increase. Luke says the money raised would actually help a lot of people in the process. If we can move it to an online platform and make it easier um, for actually the users. So uh, the way that we envision is um, if we could help um, the users to get on the platform and then if people are willing to do it online, they still have the option to mail it or um, do it in person. But because there's an online option, the way that we envision is for people to be able to pay either through credit card charges or through um, through e-checks, which are not available right now. Um, the other thing that uh, would be an option is 
they would see exactly how the process will work. Um, so, you know, after you submit it online, it will show you, hey, you know, your so application was received. Um, currently, what happens is people call us just to double check that we received their application. So it, it takes all that guesswork and frustration out of um, the user experience. So they'll know from an online um, process that their application was received. Um, it could even have information about, okay, where is it in the process? And then when it will be mailed out. So a lot of times people call to find out, well, did we get it? Did we mail it out? And that, that takes a lot of manual um, process as well. It seems like it's such a minor point to have a mm -hmm. disagreement on if it will make the system more user-friendly. Yeah, I can see how going from $1 to $10 seems very jarring if you're making a lot of um, apostle certifications. But through this, I think like an online platform, what uh, Sylvia Luke was saying is that it really helps and it would alleviate some of her staff to do more important things um, or do bigger tasks. Um, so there's multiple people working on this. I think what she said was they're on track to certify about 12,000 this year alone. And last year, there were only about 4,000. So there has been an uptick at the very least. So we'll wait to see then uh, what the lawmakers decide to do, if they're going to go back into special session to override anything. Mm -hmm. They have until a July 11th to make that decision. Okay, so I guess when the governor comes back, he'll be huddling with folks and mm -hmm. see how that works. All right, but thank you so much, Sabrina. Thank you. We have been talking to HPR's Sabrina Bowden. Uh, you can read her story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Civil Beats' lead story today is about a murder case that has been in limbo for several years. Politics and opinion editor Chad Blair joins us today. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. So this story uh, is by Kevin Dayton, and uh, it's about a murder suspect who is, according to the headline, he's been in jail for seven years without a trial. This is really, really remarkable. The, the gentleman's name is John Ali Hoffman. Uh, he's 56 years old, and he has indeed spent seven years in the Hilo jail. He has not gone to trial. He's a Big Island man. He's accused of murdering his wife and two kids way back in 2016. But, but not only is there no trial, there's no consensus on whether he's mentally fit to stand trial. He's gone under a number of mental examinations. And most of those appear to have found him to be fit. Others, maybe not so. Uh, a judge did say way back in 2016, 17, okay, he's fit, let's proceed to trial. But that was six years ago. This case is still continuing. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy because if uh, mental health was going to be an issue, you'd think that he would be sent over here to the uh, hospital here on Oahu. That is, that's right. That's the Hawaii State Hospital. And, and Kevin, in fact, did talk to a lot of experts who, even though they're not intimately familiar with this particular case, they said exactly the same thing. Why isn't he being held 
uh, in the state mental hospital because that's the appropriate venue. You know, at least one person who has been involved uh, in the court documents has said, you know, it seems like he's trying to use a defense of, of you know, psychiatric impairment to somehow, if you will, reduce his, uh, his penalty if there is to be one or to somehow result in an acquittal. We don't know that yet. Mental health examinations apparently have continued. A lot of these documents uh, are sealed court documents. Kevin did see some of them, but not all of them. We should tell you, by the way, this this Hoffman fella, it's a $2 million bail. Uh, and that's another reason I'm sure why he's still in the Hilo jail, can't post bail. Well, you know, I, I had to, like, stop and think and look this up, you know, the case, this particular case, because it, it just was so terrible, you know, that, that uh, a mother and two children were killed in this case, and yet, you know, this is in limbo. Yeah, I'm going to share the details. I apologize, but I think they are relevant. Uh, apparently, uh, Hoffman with his family lived in Lake Lani Estate. That's in Puna there on the Big Island. And it was a call to the police just before 2 o'clock in the morning uh, and saying there's been some sort of incident. The police did show up. Uh, initially, Hoffman had told them that three or four unidentified men had entered the home. Uh, but when the cops showed up, they actually found Hoffman in a car driving away with the lights off, this was in the middle of the night, pulled them over, they saw a handgun in the passenger seat, and that's when they arrested him. They also found blood on Hoffman. And then, oh my gosh, they, they saw leaking from the trunk, blood, more blood. Sure enough, they opened up the trunk and they found the wife. She had been shot in the head uh, back at the house. The kids, too, had been shot in the same fashion. Hoffman today says he doesn't remember exactly what happened uh but but the police you know have taken this very seriously the charges of first degree murder the, the prosecutor's office second degree murder possession of a firearm while committing a crime hoffman faces life in prison uh, with no possibility for parole yeah but it is such a head scratcher you know if the judge said that he was uh fit to stand trial why that didn't happen quickly and I, I don't really understand the process where you can then get, a, you know, a panel of folks coming in and revisiting this issue again. Yeah, exactly. And among the experts that, that Kevin talked to, it includes uh, former judges, uh, prosecutors, other people in the legal profession. And they're describing it as a, an anomaly. These sorts of things really just don't happen uh, very often. We did try and get comment, Kevin did, from Hoffman's lawyer. Uh, no response there. Uh, we, Kevin did try as well to get a response from the, the judiciary, the, the court system here, and the court uh, declined to do that. The uh, judiciary, they released a statement saying, you know, we can't talk about a case that is ongoing. But there are some other things I should share as well. Uh, Hoffman himself has raised, if you will, uh, conspiracy theories that somehow he is the victim of a, a national security issue involving certain nations, uh, and that uh, I, I, it doesn't seem to make sense on, in any way at all, but this is what he has been saying uh, in his court documents. Uh, we should have mentioned there's also been no move to acquit yet. No, no, no acquittal has been filed, um, and as I mentioned, these doc, many of these doctors sealed, so we can't get the full story. But it certainly is bizarre. Kevin has also reported how there have been, certainly back at the time of the killing, there were vigils. It's a small community many people outraged and, and frightened by this whole incident. Yeah, it, it is perplexing, and you wonder about, yeah, 
civil rights, but you wonder if, if it's, you know, is it a slam dunk case? But certainly lots of questions about this process, but very difficult uh, to, you know, uh, bring the light when these court documents are sealed. But good for Kevin for um, yeah, bringing this to Yeah, great light. reporting from Kevin Dayton. That's our lead story today. All right. Thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Kevin Dayton's story at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omoloka, olana, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today we want to know what Hollywood talents of Bette Midler, Kelly Hu, and Maggie Q have in common. Well, they were all born in Honolulu. Popular actresses from Hawaii aren't limited to the three just named, though, and that's why we decided to ask you about another Honolulu-born thespian. Today's mystery person was born in 1962. She lived a cosmopolitan childhood in Iraq and Australia. It was in Adelaide that she attended the Pembroke School, and at the age of 16, she landed her first film audition for the part of uh, Emmeline in Blue Lagoon, a part that eventually went to the younger Brooke Shields. She returned to Hawaii, where she attended Punahou School and graduated in 1980. She then went on to study drama and theater at the University of Southern California. Her film credits include Secret Admirer, Jerry Maguire, and The Cat in the Hat. Her image was also featured in many print and television ads as the spokeswoman for Neutrogena. For today's backyard quiz, can you tell us this actress's full birth name? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii and its Community Giving Initiative. Learn more about how this program is supporting nonprofits focusing on affordable housing projects at nairithawaii.com. In public radio, there's a phenomenon called the driveway moment. It's when you're driving somewhere and you reach your destination, but you linger in the car just so you can catch the end of a great story. Well, with the HPR mobile app, you can pick up that story anytime you want, replay national shows as well as local news stories, and make driveway moments a thing of the past. Get the HPR app in the App Store or on Google Play.
Improving Hawaii's business climate is the focus of the Chamber of Commerce Hawaii's new business barriers web portal. If you own a business in the state or have tried to start a business, the Chamber is urging you to use this portal to submit feedback about burdensome rules and regulations that slow economic growth in our state. You know, the red tape. That information and data will then be shared with lawmakers to create legislation to improve how business is done in the islands. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with the Chamber President and CEO uh, Sherry Menor McNamara in our studio recently. I know there's a handful of websites out there that rank Hawaii in the bottom 10 of states for businesses. You know, I've heard plenty of stories of how hard it is to both start and operate a business here. My brother ran a gym for a long time. I've seen several family and, and small businesses struggle. Do you think that Hawaii has a reputation for being a hard place to do business? Absolutely. Various surveys and polls clearly shows that Hawaii is one of the worst places to do business. Uh, sometimes we're number 50, sometimes mm-hmm. we're 49, go back to 50, 48, whatever it is. But yeah. it clearly shows that we are very difficult or a difficult place to do business. And we hear from our members all the time, too, and the broader business community across the islands. And it's not getting any better, as you know pandemic, many of our businesses suffered. And now that they are recovering from the pandemic, there's other challenges. We're talking about inflation, supply chain issues, workforce shortage. So it continues to exacerbate any type of substantial recovery, as well as improving our business climate. And one of the areas that we continue to hear, even pre-pandemic, is the regulatory barriers. But What are those regulatory barriers? And so that's why the Chamber of Commerce Hawaii Mm -hmm. decided to embark on this initiative to be more proactive and invite businesses to identify and describe in detail what those barriers are, whether it's the laws or whether it's the rules. But unless we know we can't do any changes. And we do know, though, that there's probably uh, quite a few antiquated laws or laws that are rules that should not exist. I applied back then, but now it has no applicability mm-hmm. or laws that need to be updated. And so that's why this is an opportunity for business to, to express to us as to what they are. And the goal really is to crowdsource all these chal- or problems and then propose policies in the next legislative session so that legislators know what those barriers are. What is it that's making it hard for businesses to survive and thrive here in Hawaii? And the the opportunity that you're talking about is the Business Barriers web portal that Chamber of Commerce Hawaii recently launched. I know it's an opportunity for Hawaii's business community to submit feedback about what they think contributes to slow economic growth and the difficulty it is to to have a business in Hawaii. Can you talk more about how the portal works? Yeah, it's very simple. They can go to uh, hibusinessbarriers.com or even go to our general website, cochawaii.org, and all they need to do is fill out their contact information and just describe in detail what is making it hard for doing business in Hawaii. You know, what kind of permitting rule or what kind of licensing uh, rule, whatever it is, we just want to hear it. We just want them to throw it back at us and we can uh, put information together uh, and work with government. Uh, It's sort of back in when President Clinton initiated the reinventing government. 
And the whole goal was to identify the laws and the rules that were outdated or made it harder to make government more efficient or for businesses to survive. And so similarly, that's what we want to do is identify those barriers and work with the legislature. I'm very hopeful because when we did talk with legislators in the past session, we floated the idea and they said, yeah, because we don't know, right? Unless we hear what they are, we don't know. And we're not familiar with many of them. We're talking vast rules and regulations. So they're very favorable, at least the ones we talked with. And even more so, now that we're going to have a new DIVA director, Jimmy Tokioka, who has background experience in running businesses. He's been a legislator. He's worked on the admin side most recently and will continue in his new role as DIVA director. He understands business, and he has always been open to having those conversations with businesses when he was a legislator. So very encouraged with his leadership there. And I did mention to him, so he definitely wants to work with us to ensure that we can be successful in bringing these ideas or the identify these regulations and bringing them to the legislature and making some movement and changes. How detailed can a business get when they're talking about or they're writing out the difficulty that they experience? Yeah, it makes us understand more what kind of impact it has. All right. So the more detailed, the better. And that way we can tell those stories to a legislature. Uh, with that said, I'd like to say that when they do provide that contact information, we do keep it confidential. We may contact the business owner or whoever fills it in and get more clarity, but always get permission to use their name and their company. But in general, information that we receive will be kept confidential. And for us, we'll just aggregate all the information and start turning it into bills or policy. I imagine that's a, a big deal for businesses in order for them to be completely honest. I think a level of anonymity is probably a, a good enticement. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And that way, hopefully, those who don't want their names disclosed, it will still encourage them to fill out the form and provide their story. And so the data that you collect, all, all of these stories, all of these sort of complaints that you collect, they will be put into a report, right? And they will be given to legislators. That's that's what the end result of the portal will be. Correct. That's yeah. the idea of it. Oh. And then turning them into bills or legislation okay. and working with the legislature as, yeah. as well as administration to see how we can work together to address what we find out from this crowdsourcing. Where did the idea for this come from? This seems like something that how come we didn't think about this you know, years ago? <laughs> Good question. Yeah. Uh, and it, again, we always hear from businesses. It's the rules and regulations. It's these regulatory barriers that make it so hard to do business. That's one component of it, but it also adds to the cost of doing business. In fact, Hero did a study as it relates to housing that the biggest cost is regulatory and so I'm sure that can apply to any type of businesses or, you know, in whatever industry. Yeah. And so, you know, we hear that a lot, but at the chamber we felt, okay, let's find out what they are and do something about it. And this fits into the broader initiatives that we're going to pursue in the next year, and that's a blueprint for our state's future. It's sort of a plan for, at least from the chamber standpoint, to build a healthier and more resilient economy. And we believe that the regulatory pillar will definitely be part of it to just build a better economy. And we've learned that through the pandemic that we do need to build right a 
right. more resilient and stronger economy. Yeah, yeah. The pandemic revealed a lot about mm-hmm. where we fall short in our economy. The information that's collected, it'll be shown to legislators. It'll be turned into bills to hopefully streamline the ability to do business here. I was just thinking, is it just regulatory? Is regulatory just the biggest part of kind of the overall obstacles? Are there other areas of business? Is is there things the business community can do better or more efficient to allow for better economic growth? Yes. So the intent of this particular website is to identify what those regulatory barriers are. Right. But with that said, we're always open Mm -hmm. and to uh, suggestions, ideas. I think as we move forward, we need to be more creative and innovative as to how to address solutions or how to come up with solutions. And so while this website is specifically developed to address the different rules and regulations, we are always open to inviting ideas. So if they want to use that portion to input their ideas, uh, by all means, please do so. Okay. Okay. What's the deadline? Is there a deadline for submitting these responses in order for it to be able to get in front of legislators or to be turned into legislation? Well, we just launched it a couple of days ago, mm-hmm. and the legislative session opens the third Wednesday, January. Right. But with that said, we want to make sure we give ourselves enough time to meet with the legislature, to meet with administration yeah. and other stakeholders so that we can come up with a much more collaborative bill or policy so that when legislative session does start, we're ready to move it forward mm-hmm. and have that discussion. So we want to start the process right now, get the input right now. Yeah. Uh, but we say about until November or so, so that it gives us enough time okay. and lead time to have those discussions. I know from a bunch of other tasks and duties that I've done here at the station that we got to give people a deadline mm-hmm. and then expect most of those entries to be submitted right before the deadline. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I don't know. I don't know if that's your experience, but... That's my experience with most things, you know, like selling tickets or something like right, that. Yeah, right, right. Anything, yeah. right? It's yeah. even when we rerun a lot of events and right. we get the surge of last minute. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, the earlier the better. Yeah. But we say we anticipate probably November, beginning of November, so that way we can aggregate everything and start meeting with the various okay. stakeholders. Okay. But we'll continue to push this out on a regular basis to ensure that's always on the, the top of the inbox and yeah. keep businesses informed. Yeah, we're very excited about this. It's like you said, I don't think there's been a comprehensive analysis Mm -hmm. of our rules and regulations and the different laws out there, but we got to start somewhere. And starting somewhere is with our businesses and having them communicate to us what those challenges are. Yeah. Who knows better than the the businesses that encounter the the challenges, right? Exactly. When you think about the long-term future and you think about the, the portal collecting this data, this data potentially turning into legislation that makes business easier in Hawaii. What do you think the ceiling is or what do you think it could be for Hawaii's business and, and Hawaii's economy? I think it could improve the business climate. And that's the reason why we're doing this. And we're already ranked almost last. <laughs> so we got to start somewhere where there's the low hanging fruit or others where we have to attack and you know take longer to address and fix, but we've got to start somewhere. And we believe that somewhere is with hawaiibusinessbarriers.com. Because we're right in the middle of the Pacific, right? We're right in the middle of a lot of big countries. I mean, we got China mm-hmm. to one side, we got the rest of the country mm-hmm. to the other side. 
And so it just seems like if we can streamline things, if we can make it easier for people and, and businesses to come here and, and operate here, it just seems like we're in a good position to be really successful. Yes. And thank you for bringing that up because in Hawaii, we, while we have our local economy, we still need investment in Hawaii. And we do hear a lot from those who do want to do business here in Hawaii that it's just expensive and it's hard and it's challenging because they've done businesses elsewhere and they can compare. But here's an opportunity for Hawaii. We are in the middle of the Asia Pacific region and we hear time and time again from businesses in the Asia market, for example, Japan, Hawaii is a good springboard to doing business in the US continent because one, the culture, similarities in the culture, food, the people, so they feel comfortable in doing business here. And so it's a springboard for doing business elsewhere. But they always say it's very hard business here. So again, here's an opportunity to address that. So let's start now yeah. and identify what those challenges are and together fix those challenges yeah. and start turning the ship and making Hawaii a good place to do business because right. we need to do that. And that way business can stay open and continue to grow and continue to create positions and high paying positions. Is there anything else that you want to share? Just reinforcing how important it is for businesses to let us know what those barriers are and to be specific so that when we do come up and craft legislation, we can ensure that it addresses those problem areas. Don't be vague. Yes. <laughs> be specific. <laughs> because yeah. we've heard before, yeah. yes, it's the re we know what's driving the cost of yeah. doing business. Regulations. Okay, but what kind of regulations? Uh, Licensing. Okay, what kind of licensing, right? And the more specific, the better we can in coming up a much more effective bill. Thanks so much for your time, Sherry. Really appreciate you coming in. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. Always good to be here. That was the Chamber of Commerce, Hawaii's Sherry Menor McNamara, talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. If you'd like to submit feedback on rules and regulations that make doing business in Hawaii more difficult than it should be, Check out the link to the Chamber's Business Barriers web portal uh, on our website later today. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Performing Arts Festival, presenting New York City jazz pianist Phil Cadet, performing Under the Stars at the Blue Dragon, July 5th. Tickets at hawaiiperformingartsfestival.org. I'm Carol Hills from The World. Each day our program gives you a chance to step outside our borders, to hear what's going on around the planet, and to hear how events in America are seen across Africa, Europe, Asia, and the Americas. Our producers and reporters dig deep to find stories that connect you with what's happening worldwide. That's why we call it The World. Join us. Starting this afternoon at one. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com.
you know, when our listeners have comments or questions about interviews we air, they often leave a message on our talkback line or send an email to our talkback inbox. And we share those messages with you on air from time to time. We got this listener comment following uh, Friday's show about the new law requiring active shooter drills in public schools. I can't uh, stress enough just how much I think you guys got it wrong. Everyone contributing, everyone involved in the conversation just got it so wrong. Really depressing how wrong you guys got it. Bad. This is not the mainland, like the bumper sticker says. We are not part of the contiguous United States. We are not part of that culture. It's that culture that's having the epidemic and shooting schools, not here in Hawaii. Don't make us part of that culture. Don't go there. You don't have to participate in that. Make the distinction between this culture here in Hawaii and that culture. It comes down to more than just ohana. Just look at what's happening in Japan, what's happening throughout Asian countries, throughout Europe. Only the good old U.S. of A. has the shooting problem. Don't make Hawaii part of the USA. Don't be part of that culture. And we also heard from Alyssa, a former DOE behavioral health specialist. She wrote, I appreciate you reading my question. However, he didn't address it at all. In my experience, there's been no preparation or debrief for students or guidance for teachers on how to help the students after the drills. They are all impacted, and it's negligent to not team up with the DOE behavioral and mental health experts to plan and guide how to help students and teachers process these drills afterwards. It's been a missing piece for way too long. Thank you for the feedback. If you have questions or comments about anything you've heard in our show, email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. The 30th Annual Conservation Conference kicks off tomorrow, and saving seeds is just one of the many things on the agenda. The National Tropical Garden uh, Botanical Garden on Kauai will be presenting the work of Emily Sailing and Dustin Walkus. He's the seed bank curator and laboratory manager, and he talked with us about the work to save the rarest of the rare and the critically imperiled that's been underway at that facility. He recalls seeing a hero in action on a visit to the National Seed Laboratory in Colorado many years ago, which he says set him on fire. Wolka says when it comes to plant conservation, he's been on figuring out the shelf life of seeds, and it's particularly challenging because many Hawaii seeds don't respond in the same way that seeds in other climates do. And that's the secret to unlock, as Hawaii has the designation as the endangered species capital of the world. It turns out that seed banking is the most efficient and cost-effective means of practicing uh, ex situ or off-site plant conservation. And when I say most efficient, you can name your metric, whether it's time, dollars, human resources, electricity, water, storage space, whatever it is. It's the most effective and cost-efficient means of plant conservation. So we have a a, a chance to to really make a difference here in Hawaii. Interestingly, for these kind of big seed banks that you've heard of, maybe they focus on agricultural species. They kind of have one kind of condition that they are storing their seeds dry and cold. But it turns out that in Hawaii, not all of our species behave in the same way when we try to apply these conventional seed conservation tools. that being drying and cooling. Mm-hmm. So, which means uh, in Hawaii, we've recently assessed 
295 species in our native Hawaiian flora, uh, looking at kind of real-time aging, uh, as well as uh, how we think they behave when we try to apply these conservation tools to them. And it turns out that maybe around a third of our flora um, behaves in this kind of anomalous way where the seeds will survive drying but not um, sub-freezing temperatures long-term, although they'll survive it for um, a few years. So that's, it's really, really very interesting. Um, it's one of the things that I study is how long seeds last. And there's, there's many different factors that will go into that. It, of course, varies by species, but it also varies by accession or seed lot collection. Well, I love that the topic of your presentation at the conference is, hi, I'm a seed and yeah. I've been, uh, been stored here in this jar for 30 years. Yeah, so that's what I study is how long seeds last, how to make them last longer, and the factors that affect their longevity or their shelf life. And so with Emily's presentation, we have an herbarium here in our same building, and there was this jar that had over 12,000 seeds of an endangered species in it, and it was stored at ambient herbarium conditions. So that's with respect to temperature and relative humidity, the two factors that affect seed longevity the most. And interestingly, there is also desiccant or some silica gel or silica sand in the jar, but it was indicating ambient conditions. And so this was really interesting. So naturally, we were curious, you know, what is the the germinability or the longevity of these seeds. Now, they've never had a viability test, and we use the germination test for our measure of viability. That's the most robust test, and it gives us what we're actually interested in, which is like, well, we'll just make an adult plant. And so Emily took some seeds from each of the accessions that was in there, and all the accessions had passport data. And so she was able to germinate those seeds, and it turned out that they had extremely high viability, 100% germination in some cases, and I think the lowest was 73. So you must have been thrilled. Oh, yeah, it it was very exciting. You know, this kind of did a couple of things for us. What it did is we then accessioned these seed lots into our conservation seed collection because they had the passport data that goes along with them and because now they're high quality as far as their germination goes. So we're able to accession those, these endangered species, into our conservation seed collection. But these seeds have a type of dormancy called physical dormancy which is characterized by a water impermeable seed coat. And this is kind of an interesting phenomenon can happen with seeds of this type where the seeds can lose water, they can desorb water, but because of that water impermeable seed coat, they cannot adsorb water. So they cannot reabsorb water. So because this jar had the desiccant in it, even though it was indicating ambient humidity, it could be that the seeds were dried initially, and even though they were exposed to ambient humidity for 30 years, it may not have mattered to the seeds because the seeds may not have been able to reabsorb that water. So you really Um, have to figure out what the trick is to coax them back to life. And yeah, in this case, we knew because they had this water impermeable seed coat that we could bypass that seed coat. In this case, I think she used sandpaper or a razor blade or something to bypass that seed coat. And so we rehydrated them overnight after that because if they, if dried seeds become exposed to liquid water, they can imbibe or drink in water so quickly that it causes damage. And so to avoid that, we rehydrate them in high humidity after we bypass that seed coat. And th- these were Ohio seeds? Yes. 
that's right, which is in the legume family. What makes that seed bank there on Kauai different from, you know, let's say the ones here on Oahu? We're all collaborate very closely together. We all have very similar setups. We're all in this network, the Hawaii Seed Bank Partnership. And so here, you know, we, we're a small collection, about 17 million seeds, about 5,000 accessions. But we're an important collection because we focus on some of the rarest of the rare. About 98% of those seeds are these Hawaiian endemic species, and which occur nowhere else on Earth. We have species that are many different accessions, many different species of species that are extinct in the wild. But because of some of the efforts of our botanists that have been rappelling down cliffs just to pollinate the plants and then come back later to collect seeds, these species will never go extinct forever because we have them in the, in the seed bank. You know, we do a lot of research here. I just recently successfully defended my PhD in seed conservation biology in the Hawaiian flora. And so I spent my entire PhD kind of researching how long these seeds last and the factors that influence their longevity, looking at temperature, moisture, lipids in seeds, using biophysical approaches. It's just kind of endlessly interesting. Well, you know, we've watched the advent of technology with drones and drones with chainsaws and, and you know, how they, they were equipped with arms that can collect things from the field. And, and so, you know, I imagine that that's such a, you know, tremendous help. Your research in gathering some of these rare plants, you know, in really dangerous spots. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's a complete game changer. Yeah, they're literally flying robots around collecting plants. And so they're able to collect the seeds directly, which is great for conservation of these species. But recently, they've collected cuttings from these flying robots, thrown them out in the nursery, and then those cuttings have produced seeds. And so then we conserve those seeds in the conservation seed bank, completing the circle. And then we also do initial viability testing through the germination test with all seed lots that come through if they have enough seeds. And so we, we did that with these seeds too, and then we always transfer our little seedlings, our little germinants, to our conservation nursery. And so it's kind of like the cycle coming fully around. And do you use plant cams? We sometimes do. So for example, there's a camera on the, the mamba, the arm of the drone, and then people will use kind of these like um, game cameras that they'll put on plants to either observe the pollinator or to kind of cue you in on when they're flowering especially if it's a if it's a potential new a species that had not been described previously then getting it a flower is of course important i recall uh, talking to a researcher who said they had a plant cam and apparently a large tree fell in the forest and came tumbling down and cut this rare plant in two and they had to you know, then jump into action and get, get out on a helicopter to see if they could save this uh, specimen. And they did. It's just really kind of heartwarming to know that all the work that you folks are doing out in these dangerous locations is, you know, making a difference. I mean, it, it's one plant, but that's one more that, you know, you've got that we didn't have maybe yesterday. Right. Yeah. I mean, as you said, it, there's been some heroic effort from these botanists over the last 40 years, taking a helicopter, then hiking all day, then rappelling down a cliff, then hiking back to the helicopter and taking a helicopter back just to pollinate the plant, for example. So, yeah, uh, it's pretty heroic. And, you know, we don't have a lot of lands that are appropriately managed. And so seed banking has been called a genetic safety net. And in fact, in the global strategy for plant conservation, which has been adapted locally into the Hawaii strategy for plant conservation, uh, one of the targets 
number eight um, suggests seed banking, and the, they've nicknamed this banking on nature. So luckily, we have seed banks that we can store seeds safely until the time is right to put them back out in nature. I am lucky enough to have my dream job, and you know, I feel like I'm I'm playing a, a little tiny microscopic part in in plant conservation and and hopefully making a difference. And that was Dustin Wolka's seed bank curator and laboratory manager of the National Tropical Botanical Garden on Kauai, which houses some 17 million seeds of rare and critically imperiled plants. And we'll be featuring seed banks all this week, so stay tuned. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. And, you know, scientists are using a telescope designed to look for alien life to observe an unusually powerful celestial event. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to explain why. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, or weekly look into the fascinating and massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. And as usual, we are thrilled to be guided in this endeavor with astronomer Christopher Phillips, as usual, and dialing him up right now on the connection. And hey, Chris, welcome back. What do we have this week? Hey, Dave, good to be back. For this week's stargazers, look out for Mars and Venus in the western sky after sunset. Both planets will set by around about 10 p.m., so catch them quickly. The moon this week will be approaching its full moon phase, so stargazing for those faint objects in the heavens will be very challenging indeed. Man, it's got to be challenging using a telescope designed to look for alien life to be checking out gamma ray bursts. Well, it turns out to be one of the most perfect instruments for it. Astronomers using the Allen Radio Telescope Array in California have been monitoring a massive gamma ray burst. Now, gamma ray bursts are not that unusual, but this one was particularly powerful so powerful and has come to be known as BOAT, which stands for brightest object of all time. <laughs> this massive outburst of energy is the result of a core collapse supernova, the explosive death of a massive star. And I know one of your other favorite topics, Chris, is the extraterrestrial potential phenomena. And wasn't this device actually designed to try to look for such stuff? Yeah, that's its primary mission. However, instruments that are designed to look for faint signals from alien civilizations are also great for vanilla astronomy. It is also how they pay some of the bills. In the case of the Allen Array, it's a highly sensitive instrument, and so it is perfect for getting detailed science from things that go bump in the night. Now, how would the difference be if you had a space telescope doing this sort of search with the gamma rays? Well, this is actually one of the rare instances in which a ground-based instrument is better situated to observe this gamma-ray burst. BOAT was so powerful that it actually blinded the gamma-ray space telescopes. So if it blinded the space telescopes, how come we didn't see it here on the Earth? Well, it is billions of light years away, and these telescopes are very sensitive and not designed to observe such powerful phenomena. In fact, they specialize in seeking out very faint sources far out in the universe. However, in this case, the blast was just too bright for the detectors. This is actually a problem that we have with ground-based observatories, too. They can be saturated or blinded, essentially, by bright sources of light close to us in our galaxy, such as nearby stars. 
Well, we love black holes on Stargazer, don't we? And is there any chance we have a little baby one coming because of this? Oh, yeah, I would bet on it. That's what makes this really exciting. We get to observe the death of a star, but also the birth of a black hole. In fact, we suspect BOAT is about a 1 in 10,000 years event. So we have been very lucky indeed to catch it. And learn about it from you, as uh, you've been doing for about 10 years. I've been researching how long we've had astronomer Chris for Phillips with us and appreciate it. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. Now it's time for your backyard quiz answer. Earlier in the show, we put the spotlight on a Hollywood actress who was born in Honolulu. She spent parts of her childhood living abroad in Iraq and Australia before returning to Honolulu, where she graduated from Punahou, class of 1980. She chose to study drama and theater at the University of Southern California, later transferred to UCLA, but never got her diploma. She instead chose to focus on her budding Hollywood career. Fans may remember that this local talent broke into show business under her legal name, Kelly Palsis, uh, after she was cast in uh, several television series in the early 80s, such as The Renegades and CBS daytime serial Capital. In 1983, the actress changed her surname, racking up film credits as Kelly Preston in movies like Jerry Maguire in the comedy Twins and the Experts. This Hollywood actress, who would eventually marry John Travolta, was born Kelly Kamahelelehua Smith, which was the answer that we were looking for. But we had no winners today. We stumped you on that one. If you have an idea for a quiz, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, that does it for us today. We're out of time. Uh, Tomorrow, we plan to hear from veterans who can't get access to medical care at home. A catch-22 in an effort to correct an inequity for our Pacific Island neighbors. Call our talkback line uh, for comments or questions, 808-792-8217. Give us some feedback. You can find the Conversation podcast on Spotify or Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the Conversation. 